Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week's podcast is on the NATO summit in Warsaw. People have been talking about this summit for many months, including even on this podcast. And back in the dim and distant past, we feared that there might be a big transatlantic bust up over the basing of American soldiers uh, in Europe. But between then and now, another big event has happened, which was the British Brexit referendum. And this was one of the first big events that brought leaders together, not just from within the EU, but from the other side of the Atlantic as well. And those were the two big topics on the agenda in Warsaw. To help us make sense of what happened at the summit and what it means for the future of European security, we have an all-star cast. First up is Piotr Buras, who is the head of ECFR's office in Warsaw and a senior policy fellow at, um, for ECFR. Um, we also have Jeremy Shapiro, our research director, who is uh, an American passport holder. And Vesela Chanova, the uh, head of programs at ECFR and also head of our office in Sofia, another country that was represented in, uh, in Warsaw. And finally, uh, Ulrika Franke, who's a research assistant at ECFR and an expert on military issues, particularly on drones. Uh, but she comes from Germany. So, Piotr. You uh, have been watching all of the fuss about the summit for many months now, and uh, people are starting to, to pack up and, and leave uh, from Warsaw. Maybe life there is returning to normal. How, what, what actually happened? You know, I think uh, from the Polish perspective, the summit met the expectations uh, in the sense that the eastern flank was clearly strengthened. The, the fact that the uh, American brigade is coming to Poland and they... And the uh, NATO battalions are, are coming to to Poland and the other Baltic states, three other Baltic states. This is what uh, was discussed already over the few months, and there was no surprise in that sense. And of course, this, this was the maybe not the maximum, of course, expectations um, of of the um, Eastern. NATO member states, but still something which is really uh, important. I think the in the the, the, <clears throat> the, the permanent uh, presence of NATO troops that was not longer in the cards uh, for for the last few weeks, if not months. But uh, what is important, I think, from from our regional perspective, is it's not really the fact that uh, NATO would be. Um, able to mil militarily really stand up to the uh, to a potential Russian aggression because it, it, it will not, it clearly will not. I mean, the military um, build-up um, at the eastern flank is not sufficient to, to face the potential uh, you know, large-scale Russian aggression. But the fact is that uh, the way how the decisions of the NATO summit uh, were formulated means that in case of an aggression, NATO will really have to act collectively, and this is this is what what really counts from from the from from the uh, from the Eastern European perspective, and this has been uh, has been achieved, and th this is why uh, Poland and other uh, Eastern NATO member states perceived the summit as, as successful, and of course the other t big uh, topic. Um, 
was Brexit and its implications for the transatlantic community in, in security policy terms, but also far beyond that. And I, I think that um, the NATO summit was an occasion to demonstrate the, the transatlantic unity, uh, and this uh, was clearly the case, but at the same time, under the surface, uh, one could see some some fractures, and uh, with with some NATO member states like France or or, or Turkey, Turkey stressing uh, completely different security policy concerns. Like Turkey, um, these, um, was clearly not very happy with uh, with the way how the southern um, flank of NATO was strengthened. Uh, France stressed the. Uh, the 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 importance of the terrorist uh, threat. Uh, so these these structures um, appeared um, again, and they have been uh, known for 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 a longer period of time. But NATO summit, uh, I think, was not able to uh, to 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 bridge all these all these differences. Um, and of course, Brexit was the the, the big looming um, issue. Um, at the political horizon of the of all discussions. So, Jeremy, you've been involved in lots of NATO summits over the years. One thing which is always clear is that whatever is in the news at the time, we learn that that makes NATO even more important than it was beforehand. How does uh, the Brexit affect the importance of NATO? Is this yet another occasion where NATO is more important than ever before? Yes, Brexit makes NATO more important than ever before. You know, NATO, indispensable. Um, I think, you know, although NATO does need a new strategic concept to move forward into the new age, um, and it is very important that um, that the NATO members establish a new mechanism for burden sharing, establish new capabilities, and create new partnerships with the broader world. So that is the message of this summit, and roughly speaking, the message of every summit since the beginning of time. I think the first one was in... 127 BC, um, and they were very. It was very important for them to have uh, more burden sharing within the Roman Empire, and I think that this this is going to move forward in this regard. And NATO summits are comforting on a certain level because they are um, they are a sort of rock of stability in an otherwise ever changing world. You know that no matter what happens, whether Britain is falling outside of the European Union, whether whether Russia is invading some neighboring country, that that the, they will have these discussions, that they will break down along the same lines, um, and that uh, not too much will be decided or really changed. And that's, you know, I think that that's roughly the story of this of this NATO summit. But I think that, uh, and Piotr emphasized this too, that under the surface there is a lot going on in the world, and it's not as if the leaders are unaware of it. They just don't want to really bring it out in the NATO summit, particularly in a public way. And so... Uh, I, uh, from an American perspective, I think there is, a, there is uh, it, it, to a large part because of the Brexit vote, but frankly, uh, going back to the refugee crisis and even to the Euro crisis, uh, a growing and in fact at this point crystallizing sense that the European project is unraveling and that the American concept of Europe as a, as a region that could not only take care of itself and in its own security problems, but also could potentially export stability to its neighboring regions is is uh, is is not working, and I think what you what you are seeing is a is a growing view in Washington, and, and I think it's it's there under the um, under the surface at the NATO summit that uh, that there has got to be a reengagement uh, of 
of the United States and Europe. Uh, you know, there, so there the actually, four battalions, which are the rotational battalions, which are being sent to Poland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, are not just kind of empty symbolism. You think it's emblematic yeah. of a of a bigger idea that Europe is not fixed. I think I think that they are. I mean, I think in the first instance they, you know, they've been in the plans for a while. And the in the first instance, they're yes, they're a, they're a sort of typical reassurance response to Warsaw, to 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 Poland, and to some of the other countries in that in that area. But I do think that there is a sense in wa- uh, in Washington that um, that Europeans are not stepping up, and that the United States has to, um, and that you're seeing a greater response from an Obama administration, which after all, like, like the previous couple of American administrations, had, had been charting a slow, uh, a slow American disengagement from Europe on the basis of the idea that it was a solved problem, that that's, that that's starting to be reversed. Now, nobody really knows. I mean, the four battalions are not the essence of that. Let's nobody- say that out of the four battalions, only one is American. So you speak as if, you know, it was all an American no, but, operation. but that was yeah. my point, is that what, the four battalions are not the essence of that. The, 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 they, are, they are one very minor step in that. And I don't think people know what the essence of that is yet. To, to say that the Americans have decided that they need to be uh, more involved in Europe doesn't mean that they've decided how to do that. Um, but I think that there has been a, a significant change in the attitude in Washington toward this problem because of the sort of growing sense of an unraveling in Europe and the, and the, and the obvious impact that that will have on U.S. Uh, interests around the world. So, Vesa, you started to come in there. You're uh, also from uh, a country that um, has... Uh, found itself uh, having to deal with Russia in various different ways over the years. But it's also a torn country where some people want to deter, other people want to to uh, have close relationship with, with Russia. And Bulgaria has also been involved in some of these underlying tensions within the NATO group. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. I, maybe I can first... Uh, um, uh oppose a little bit what Jeremy said. I don't yeah. think <laughs> uh, I don't think that every NATO summit is uh, is the same. We have seen a big journey that NATO made from um, being a territorial defense alliance going to the, the dilemma out of area or out of business around uh, the Afghanistan uh, uh, operation then going uh, to uh, back to the idea of, um, you know, we have a we have a territorial threat, so now we have come in a way full circle. We're even talking about deterrence. Uh, this is a word that we had forgotten, uh, and um, the fact that there those four battalions. Uh, I think is significant because uh, maybe here I would share uh, Jeremy's sarcasm. Um, most of the summits uh, have been about declaring intentions, and now for the first time a summit produces kind of uh, very substantial, even though modest, uh, very concrete steps. Um, this was uh, not easy. Uh, to achieve. There was a very big debate within NATO for a long time 
whether we would go, whether NATO would decide to to step up militarily uh, in the east and uh, strengthen its eastern flank, and the fact that this is happening. Uh, uh, does not mean that this is the end of this discussion, because I think the discussion exactly that. Do we uh, talk about deterring Russia, or do we want to have, uh, you know, NATO-Russia Council? And uh, and this dilemma um, goes uh, through different issues, through different countries. And in our case, uh, the whole Black Sea um, which is basically seen from the perspective of small of the small countries around it as split between Russia and Turkey is now all of a sudden also part of this uh, eastern flank uh, of NATO and i'm saying that this that this is a novelty because turkey um, has been for a long time very hesitant to go into nato planning uh, in its Black Sea policy. Um, there is also the so-called Montreux Agreement, uh, which does not allow ships of countries uh, which are not around the Black Sea to enter the, the sea for more than 20 days. Um, so the Black Sea has never really been a NATO sea. Um, and now for the first time, it was a Romanian initiative uh, to build uh, something they called uh, Black Sea Fleet, uh, which was not a very surprising idea, given that Crimea is basically on the other side of that same sea. Uh, but it turned into a substantial project after the Turks decided to join in. Um, and this created a lot of tension in uh, Bulgaria. Um, a couple of weeks ago, when the Romanian president came with that offer, came to Bulgaria and presented his suggestion, the Bulgarian government interpreted this as a direct threat against Russia and provocation against Russia, and uh, uh, even indicated that it was ready to to um, get. Uh, to get in an argument with Tur with Turkey uh, and to see unraveling of the migration deal um, as a price for not engaging in such a Black Sea fleet. So at the end of the day, um, this uh, for the time being is not happening. Uh, but the debate also in the country and in NATO uh, shows this volatility. Do we uh, engage with with Russia. Our Prime Minister even said we don't want to have uh, saber rattling, which is something that um, also uh, the German Foreign Minister said a couple of days ago. We don't want to provoke Russia and we want to see the Black Sea as a demilitarized zone, which uh, keeping in mind again that Crimea <laughs> is, is uh, in the same uh, Black Sea is, uh, is a very impractical idea, to put it mildly. So, Ulrike, talking about torn countries, you had very different messages in, in the run-up to this uh, summit coming out of the, the Auswärtige Kazan, the, the foreign ministry and, and the chancellor's office. 
Yeah, exactly. And it really, it's quite interesting because it seems to me that the discussion on the NATO summit in Germany really played out in the run up to it. And then when it happened and when it ended, there wasn't that much attention on it anymore. So it was very much in the week leading to the NATO summit, uh, mainly because of Operation Anaconda, the military um, exercise that wasn't officially a NATO exercise, but a Polish exercise um, with um, tens of thousands of other NATO soldiers on the ground. And Frank-Walter Steinmeier, the German foreign minister, said, or well, yes, said in, in the Bildzeitung, I believe, that this operation was sable-rattling um, and he was very critical of it. Now, he later said that it wasn't exactly that what he meant and he had been misrepresented to a certain extent. But there's certainly um, no agreement within the German public, but also within even the German government on where we should go in terms of deterrence versus diplomacy. Um, as you can imagine, the German public and the German media generally tends more towards diplomacy and, and doesn't want to, to be too militaristic about this. Um, but uh, Angela Merkel and, and uh, Defense Minister von der Leyen, they, they want also to send a relatively strong message and the Bundeswehr is, is going to be in charge of the battalion in Lithuania, if I'm not mistaken, and will also send Bundeswehr soldiers there. So there's a willingness to to take this step, but um, everyone is very concerned of guaranteeing this balance between deterrence and diplomacy. So that's a kind of long-running uh, dilemma which which Germany has has been kind of dealing with and, and Europe more generally the, the the one new thing that happened just before the summit was the idea of a Brexit and Britain potentially leaving the European Union um, how does that change the way that people think about NATO because for a long time there's been this kind of dance going along where people uh, well Britain was for many years uh, opposing and and the US was opposing advances in European defence because it would undermine NATO. Then uh, the US realised that actually the one way of really undermining NATO was to stop Europeans from doing anything on defence because uh, then uh, there'd be a much weaker NATO because the EU wouldn't get its act together. And the last thing you want to do is give them an excuse not to get their act together by opposing um, European defence integration. And even Britain seemed to drop some of its more sort of uh, hardline objections to, to, to European defence cooperation and started building bilateral relationships with France and under Tony Blair also um, uh, was pushing forward with the Saint-Malo Accords. Uh, but now um, uh, it looks like Britain might end up outside of the European Union after the referendum um, and uh, NATO uh, could potentially be a channel for for Britain to be involved once again in European defence from outside of the EU. There are various different things which have stopped NATO and the EU, apart from that, getting on, such as Cyprus and the whole and Turkey and uh, and Greece and other kind of uh, uh, countries that are, in, that are represented in both sides. Though there might be some moves uh, on, the, on the Cyprus front. And certainly Mogherini the EU high representative and Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of, of NATO, have been trying to uh, pull the two institutions closer together. In fact, Mogherini was even in Warsaw, I think, um, which is a, a kind of new departure for, for EU-NATO cooperation. Uh, I don't know who wants to come in on that. What, uh, what's, it's obviously too early to know exactly how any of these things are going to play out in the long term, but... Should we start thinking differently about NATO as a result of this? 
So I think, you know, not necessarily. Uh, I mean, at least from the Polish perspective, uh, you know, Brexit doesn't change much about uh, the perception of NATO because uh, apart from a very short period of time, a couple of years ago in Poland, you didn't basically believe very much into the uh, European security and defense component. It was uh, rather seen as a, as a very theoretical uh, project, um, um, which which appeared whenever you know there were no other better ideas for 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 deepening the European integration. And this is probably uh, this is the I think the prevailing thinking in Warsaw. The, the case again that since we do not know what to do after Brexit, we should strengthen the cooperation in the defense and security policy uh, because this is the, the safest, uh, so to say, area. Uh, and, and But in fact, no, no real progress is, um, is to be expected. But, but I think the, um, you, you, you outlined it very, uh, very well, we're saying that they are very contradicting, in a way, in ideas how to deal with Brexit in the security and, and defense um, uh, cooperation, because the one, one approach would be to strengthen the continental, so to say, security and defense policy uh, along the Franco-German axis, Without the UK, but the other the other idea uh, could be to to use this uh, foreign security and defense realm as an area where uh, the UK, despite being outside of the European Union, could be part of a you know larger European project. Um, but uh, but these are as I see it, they are two completely different uh, different approaches. And, uh, and deepening institutionally uh, the security and defense cooperation along the permanent uh, structured cooperation, for example, um, uh, line uh, w- would be rather to the detriment of uh, of engaging the UK in this um, in this project. Uh, so I think the two, two, both ways are at the moment open, and uh, but I I don't I don't see it uh, happening uh, very soon, at least as as far as all these Franco-German uh, ideas are are concerned. But maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is a too 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 Polish. <laughs> Any non-Poles want to come in? Uh, sure, I think. Um... You know, you said that uh, the United, you sort of portrayed the United States as having a at, at one element at one point a NATO a pro NATO policy for European defense, and then another point a a pro EU and maybe a bilateral. I think that for a long time, for at least ten years, uh, the United States has been quite agnostic about the um, the sort of uh, the way in which European defense is organized. It's just what's important to the United States is that it is organized. Um, I think that the uh, the the Brexit debate, the Brexit, the Brexit, like what Gandhi said about European civilization. Yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice. Yeah, and I think that that's really the way they think about it. Um, And I uh, so there's three basic channels. There's the bilateral channel. There's the EU channel. The NATO channel. I think what we'd like to see is progress on all of them. The 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 Brexit referendum has been a setback to the EU channel, but not necessarily. You could you could conceive of it still advancing through the permanent structured cooperation. I, I, I tend to agree with Piotr that that's unlikely, but I don't think it's necessarily in in um, 
tension with the NATO channel. The idea that they, the idea that uh, that the France and Germany could use the absence of Britain to move forward and then use that to bring Britain in, uh, either through NATO or through some other mechanism, isn't crazy. I don't think it will happen, but it's not. But it's not crazy. I think that. Uh, from a from a U.S. perspective, they are going to lean more heavily on NATO. Frankly, they've always been leaning fairly heavily on the NATO in the absence of much effective EU action on the score, uh, and they'll continue to do that. But I think not really from an ideological standpoint. Ulrika, you talk a lot to German military. What do you? What does the the view from Berlin look like? Um, well, everyone is pretty concerned about Brexit, obviously, and I think when it comes to security policy, Germany is increasingly feeling left alone um, in Europe. Um, and obviously that's made worse by the fact that Germany never wanted to be the kind of security and foreign policy leader of, of Europe in the first place. So um, the German government has really, really tried to downplay all of this. And especially with regard to NATO, they have emphasized a lot that, uh, it, it, you know, Britain is still going to be NATO and it's all going to be fine. But I think at the end of the day, Germany's is feeling left alone. It's not really sure whether they can lean on France so much. Um, so I think there's a lot of concern. Last word to you. Still, the defense, the topic of defense, uh, seems to be one uh, of the of the topics that uh, can uh, get uh, many, or at least a, a big number of the parties concerned around the table. Defense, security, migration; these are all issues on the table for the EU for the next uh, months and years, and obviously for NATO as well. So. Um, uh, it's, I'm quite sure that uh, that NATO will uh, still be relevant to the European debate as well. Thank you very much. There's one more segment which we need to do, which we'll record later, which is the bookshelf thing. But maybe Piotr, do you want to tell us what you, what's on your bookshelf? Oh, on my bookshelf is at the moment, uh, there are a couple of books uh, on, uh, on Austria. Um, history uh, on history of Austria and Burgenland. It's very strongly connected with my holiday plans, but I very much um, recommend the 100 things you um, you need to see in Burgenland, which is the Hofferland in uh, in Austria. Very beautiful place. Politically, maybe less interesting. But um, but I strongly recommend not only reading this book, but also visiting this beautiful piece of, uh, of Austria. Well, we might come back to you after the German election, uh, the Austrian elections, particularly if Hofer is, is re-elected. You can tell us how to understand his mind. So, Ulrike, what's on your bookshelf? <laughs> on my bookshelf is a science fiction book that I finished last night, I think. Um, it came out last year, but I'm not too sure how many people have already read it, given that it's almost a thousand pages long. But I very much recommend it. It's called Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. Um, and it's science fiction in the best sense of the word, and that there is a lot of sciences in there. Um, and it's set in the not too far future, where one day, all of a sudden, the moon explodes. And uh, humankind needs to find ways to survive that. I'm not going to spoil anything more than that, but yeah, I very much recommend it. It's 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 great entertainment, but it's also science, really. And there are lots of robots and drones. And it's Britain in the European Union. Well, you know, <laughs> it doesn't say specifically, but the one good thing about the moon blowing up is that all humankind on Earth really comes together to find a solution okay. to that. That's a good thing. So, Jeremy, 
What's on your bookshelf? Uh, I'm reading uh, Michel Houlebecq's Submission. It's a French novel about uh, that takes place in 2022, and it's about a a um, a, a Muslim in, in a in a sort of strange uh, circumstance, being elected president of France and essentially Islamicizing uh, France. Um, though interestingly, I thought the novel from that description would be about the decline of France uh, take, with a sort of humorous slant to it, which I was greatly in favor of reading about. But it turns out it's really more about the decline of sort of bourgeois, white, middle-aged men, which is something that was a lot more difficult for me to take. So it's been a hard read so far, even though it is really quite hilarious. That sounds brilliant. And on my bookshelf at the moment, I want to recommend a report which ECFR has recently published called The World According to Insurgent Parties. Not very many people in this world have gone and spoken to the foreign policy spokespeople of all 45 insurgent parties around the European Union to try and find out what their foreign policies are. But we have done that, so you don't have to. And it's one of the most fascinating uh, pieces of reading you'll ever see. You'll see how in a third of EU member states, new parties are coming to power. And in many others, they are becoming increasingly influential. And these parties come from all sorts of different places. But collectively, they're calling for a revolution in foreign policy. Tr uh, typically, these parties are pro-Putin, anti-NATO, anti-intervention, anti-immigrant, anti-free trade. And they also all love referenda. About 34 EU-related referenda are being called for in 18 member states by these different parties. Highly recommended. If you like this podcast, please do go to the iTunes homepage and give us a review. Give us a ranking. Apparently, it really helps to drive traffic to the page. Alternatively, you could write about us on our Facebook page or post about it on yours, or tweet about it to your friends. There are links to all the things that we mentioned in our podcast and to the books which people have recommended on our ECFR page, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. And for now, from Piotr Barras, Vesla Chernova, Jeremy Shapiro, Ulrike Franke and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, the same one. And our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. <laughs>